Easter is in two weeks, as you know. It's a great opportunity for us. People are looking for a place uh, to come and worship. Some people only come to church Easter and Christmas during the year, and this is a great chance for us to go and to share the good news, to invite people. And so I just invite you to look for opportunities the next couple of weeks to say, hey, you got a place where you're going to church on Easter? Come to my place. <laughs> Come to our place. And uh, let's sing and celebrate because that's what we're going to do. We want to blow the doors off this place in, in celebration of what Jesus has done, that he has risen. Uh, and I love Sunday. I love Easter Sunday. It's like the, the crescendo of, of all things for the year. But before we can get to Sunday, I think we have to really appreciate Friday and what happened on Friday uh, before the Sunday. And uh, that's why we're doing a Good Friday service this year. And uh, before we even get to Friday, uh, we're going to look at some scripture this morning that's actually the Thursday of Holy Week. And we're looking at some of the prayers of Jesus, some passionate prayers of Jesus that were leading up to the cross. If you have your Bible with you today, your app, you can open it up. We're in Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus, that Thursday night, he met with his disciples, and they shared this Passover meal together. It was where we have the, the Last Supper. And for four hours, they ate, and they had different scripture readings, and they sang, and they spent time together. They laughed together. They shared memories together. And the cool thing about this is we actually know some of the songs that they sang there because they're straight from the Psalms. The Psalms that we have in our, in our Bible, they sang those words. And at the end of, 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 of the Last Supper, they actually sang one last hymn, one last song together, and then they made their way out. And we know what they sang. And so here are some of the verses that they sang as they were getting ready to leave that upper room. Psalm 118, here's some verses from that. As Jesus and his disciples, just picture them singing this song. And I'm not going to try to sing it for you, uh, but here it is. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord and to trust than to trust in, the pe in people. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has given me victory. I wonder if Jesus was singing this as he made his way, because he left the upper room, and they traveled outside the south I think my directions are correct. My, the south, east, west, I guess that would be west corner of the city, and they made their way out down through the valley, Kidron Valley, and they made their way up to this place called Gethsemane there to a familiar place where they would go, and they've been actually several times, and they sang this song, and they, it's about a three Three-fourths mile journey, about 25-minute walk that they win. It's about 11 o'clock at night. It's dark, and probably moonlight is the only thing that's guiding their way, maybe some torches. And Jesus comes to this garden, uh, but it really wasn't like a garden as we see with flowers, but more olive trees and trees that look like this. In fact, these are actually the trees that are there today, there, outside of the city. And trees that have been there, some say, for 3,000 years. So these trees are actually some of the trees that Jesus and his disciples walked through that night 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, he, he turned to his, all of his disciples. There are 11 of them at this point because Judas has left the room. 
and he's going to, to find the betrayers and this group of men that are going to come and, and take Jesus away. And he turns to the eight, uh, to eight of them and says, you guys stay back. And he takes his closest three disciples with him to this inner place of the garden. And he, he goes further in this garden to this olive uh, tree place, and appropriately known, appropriately known for being an olive press, was what Gethsemane means. And he goes inside, and something must have happened. Maybe the moonlight hit Jesus' face in a certain way, because the disciples suddenly noticed an, a look of anguish and distress on Jesus' face, sorrow and mourning just all over his expressions. I don't know if the disciples had ever seen that kind of expression from Jesus before. And he turns to them and he says this in Matthew 26, 38. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He turns to the disciples and says, stay here, keep watch, and pray. So why was he so grieved? Why was he so full of sorrow in these moments leading up to the cross? He is God. He's the Son of God. He, he knew what was to come. Why was he feeling this? Maybe it was the gravity and weight of what was about to happen in the next few hours. And I, I, one person told, described the Bible to me this way, that if you look at your Bible, if you have a physical Bible with you today, or you can look at your app, that Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of creation. I'm going to turn in my Bible to Genesis 1 and 2. It's the story of creation, how God created all things, man, woman, birds, things in the sea. And then chapter three is the story of the fall. And you know about the fall. Adam and Eve are in the garden. The serpent in the form, Satan in the form of a serpent shows up. He tempts Eve and says, you, why don't you eat from this tree? And Eve responds, well, that's the tree we're not supposed to eat from. And then Satan comes back with different temptations. Like, did he really say that? He just wants you to be, doesn't want you to be like him, and all of these things are happening, and finally she gives in, and chapter three is all about the fall, when she takes a bite of that fruit, and, and Adam does the same, and what happens? They realize that their, their eyes are open, they realize that they are naked, and they run in shame, and they hide. When God comes to spend time with them is what he really wants. He wants this relationship with man. They are, they're in the bushes hiding with their shame. And they're separated for God, from God for, forever. This separation is there. And what Genesis chapter 4 all the way to the book of Revelation is all about, God trying to reconcile his people, trying to bring his people back to bridge this gap that's there, that's been created by sin. And we see the effects of sin everywhere, brokenness and hurt all around the world. So maybe with Jesus' mission on his mind, with the thought that the cross was the bridge. The cross is what's going to, to bring man back and how pivotal of a moment, maybe the most important moment in human history, and maybe just the, the weight of that moment is on his shoulders and he's feeling this sorrow and this grief. Maybe it's just the, the pure fact that the, the cross is going to be a torturous thing. I mean, we, we've heard and, and read accounts of what that's like in the, the torture before the cross and, and being flogged and the, the crown of thorns and being beaten almost to the point of death, only to go on a cross and to hang on a cross in front of everyone and to die, that kind of death. Maybe just the pain was what he was thinking about and he was sorrowful about. Maybe it was, as some scholars say, the fact that the entire, the weight of sin was going to be on his shoulders and just that, that how that was pressing in on him 
on the cross, or it's about to happen. Or maybe it was just the separation of God as he was on the cross, the fact that, that God, with the sin of the world, the sacrifice of the sin, that God potentially, possibly turned away from him in, in those moments and as he's bearing the sin and dying for us. Whatever it was, Luke, the physician, says that the stress was so bad that the blood vessels in his forehead, they begin to dilate to the point of rupturing. It's this this thing called hematohydrosis, and I'm not sure if I even said that right. Those in the room in the medical field will probably correct me afterwards, but this, this condition where he actually bled drops of blood. He was so anguished in these moments. And what we see here, and it's, it's strange to say this, but this passage is, one, is, is a favorite passage of mine because what we see is that Jesus is human, that he was both fully divine and fully human at the same time. It's what we call, in fancy words, theological terms, the incarnation, that God came and he was flesh, that he was fully God and he was fully human, which is is this mysterious thing. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but it's the fact that God experienced what we experience as humans. He knows what it feels like to be hungry. We saw that in some places, to be tired, to be to be. Hurt, hurting for other people. We see in Mary and Martha's story when Lazarus dies, what, is he, what happens? He actually weeps. He cries because he feels that kind of pain. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. John 10.35, you've learned a verse today. There it is, John 10.35. Jesus wept. He, he experienced that, and that wasn't for show. He, it was the real deal. He was feeling the same kind of things that we do. Have you heard about this show? I just heard about it this week. A&E has, has got a show out called 60 Days In. Have you seen the promos for this? I don't think it's actually been come out yet. But they took seven volunteers, and I think it's an Indiana prison maybe, where they have taken these volunteers, and they, they went into a prison, I think a maximum security prison, and they volunteered to go in and basically be amongst the prisoners. And, and with a complete cover, they, they went through the process of, of, of really fake booking them on charges. And the whole point was to kind of get inside the system and see what was, was happening. I can tell you right now, you could pay me. I don't know what they were paying these people, but it was not enough. Uh, I don't think that I could do that or would do that. 60 days, would you volunteer to do that? Is there a number that if I said I will pay you $100,000, would you do that? $100,000. I, I can't imagine. And uh, so that might be an interesting watch there to see what, you know, the inside view. Uh, because the prisoners didn't know, even the guards didn't even know that they, they were there. And so this, is, this, this program is going to be all about that. Now, the guy that was, I think it was a, either a sheriff or, or someone in charge, was the, kind of spearheaded this project. And he really wanted to see what was happening inside the prison. And this was the quote I thought was interesting. He said, the only way to truly understand what was going on in the jail was to implement innocent participants into the system. That's the only way we would know. So here is Jesus who has come down no offense to the jail <laughs> with us in the brokenness and the hurt in the midst of the junk of this world, and he became one of us. I love the passage in Hebrews that says it this way. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize 
who is unable to empathize with us, with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Important part there. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus has been there, done that. He knows what you're going through. He knows what we're going through. He knows how we've been tempted. And we know that as we think about different temptations, maybe, you know, vanity, yes, Jesus was tempted. That pride, absolutely. Uh, maybe this, the stuff and the things of this world, yes. Lust, yes. Maybe drunkenness, yes. All of the things that God was experienced in some way, but he was without sin. So here is Jesus. He's at the garden, and he, asks, and he goes inside, and he begins to pray this prayer. Father, if it's possible... Let this cup of suffering pass from me. And he prays this not one time, not two times, but three times he, he prayed this prayer. And each time he returns, and where are the disciples? They're asleep. And this verse says, he returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even for one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. What a word there, an interesting word. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I, I was talking to a friend, and uh, actually we had a staff meeting, and uh, someone in our staff meeting, and we were just asking the question, who told you about Jesus? How did you come to know Jesus? What's your, kind of your, your salvation story? And one person in our staff, it was Amanda, who said, you know, one of the, the biggest factors for me in me coming to, to know the Lord was watching The Passion of the Christ, the movie. When I watched that, it just was, oh, it just kind of ripped me in part inside, and God spoke to the movie. Have you seen that movie before? It is, man, it is powerful uh, stuff. Mel Gibson has made some weird movies through his years, uh, but man, this is a home run. I mean, it was an amazing movie, and you felt like you were there, didn't you? When you saw some of the images of Jesus, they were, man, it just tore me apart. I mean, it was hard to watch without being emotional and feeling like you were a part of, of, of that moment in history. Now, and by the way, uh, Jim Caviezel, uh, I don't know if you know Jim Caviezel, uh, can you imagine being him? I mean, now forever, he is Jesus, and so every, you know, every time he sees people, people just associate Jim Caviezel with Jesus, and it's got to be a lot of pressure on a guy uh, there. You know, would Jesus do that, Jim? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe his wife would say that, I don't know. Um, but there was one scene in the movie that I really... I didn't care for. And maybe you remember, it actually was multiple scenes. It was a character. Uh, you know, there's the scene from when Jesus was in the garden and uh, he was praying and, and what we're talking about today. But there was a character that just kind of irked me at the time. And it was this character that was, that was Satan. Do you remember that? It was like the, the all whites kind of, and the, the bald guy. It was just kind of weird, that it, the presence in the movie. And I remember thinking, eh, I wish they would just left that, one, that part out of it. But you know what, as, as I've thought about this passage of scripture in the garden, maybe, maybe they were onto something with this character. Especially when you see in the movie, you see Satan showing up in the garden. And he's beginning to talk to Jesus and even tempt Jesus. And you see this serpent come out of, beside his leg that's there. And what scholars say is this, 
that if you rewind back, remember Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus, right before he was getting started in his ministry, he goes out and he, he prays and he fasts for 40 days. And that's what really the Lent thing is all about, preparing and, and fasting and preparing for what's ahead. And he's there in the desert after all this time, after not eating, and who shows up? Satan shows up and he tempts him. Do you remember those three things, not one, not two, but three things that he said? If God, if you are God, then tell these stones to, to, to turn into bread, appealing to his humanity and his physical needs and his desires. Man, and this is Jesus' response in that moment, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil doesn't go away, he goes back, comes back again. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for the angels will come and save you. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. A third time, Satan comes back and he says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, appealing to the desire for, for power, maybe for fame, and their splendor. And this is, this is what, what he said, and this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, what's his response? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and they, they attended to him. So he's, here's Jesus. He's been praying. He's been preparing. And here comes, and, and an hour and a time where he is weak, physically weak. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He comes back after that time of prayer with Scripture, and through the power of prayer and through the Holy Spirit, he's able to defeat the enemy in those moments. What is temptation? It's when something is pulling us away, pulling away us away from God. James would talk about these things that would entice us and, and draw us away. So is it possible that Jesus is being tempted there in the garden? Not once, not twice, but three times. And I don't know if Satan was actually there in the garden with him, but maybe he was a voice in his head. You know, you're only 33 years old. Are you really the son of God? Is this really God's plan? This is the plan? You dying on a cross? How is that gonna help anyone? You know, what if those disciples out there, you know, you're trusting them to spread this message what if they just don't? What if they just give up and turn around? You know, this isn't a good idea. Maybe there is another way. Maybe there is another way. Hey, kids, uh, I don't know if you know this. There's, I know it's spring break. We don't have a ton of kids this morning, but there used to be a uh, games that we played that didn't involve apps and, you know, remote controls and whatnots. If you look around the room with the gray hairs in the room, they played this game uh, called, uh, it was involving a can and they would kick it around sometimes. Uh, that was the kind of games that they played. And uh, other game, I actually, my favorite game growing up was a game called Cup Ball. It involved uh, squishing a cup and hitting it with your hands uh, and we would run and play like baseball. Cup Ball at, Highly sophisticated games. Uh, there is another game that we would play, and it involved just a rope. You would just find a random rope. Uh, do you remember this, this game? It's called Tug of War. Uh, there we go. You're with me now. Tug of War. And uh, the way you would play it uh, is, is pretty simple. Uh, Brennan, you want to help me out? You would, uh, you know, if you're really intense, you would wrap it around your, you can grab the, let's see if we can find the end. You'd wrap it around your waist, and... Uh, Get two people or maybe a team of people, a, a, a group of people, and uh, you would take this rope, and I know this is, this is sophisticated and tough, but 
You know, Brennan's, we're gonna, there we go, gonna put that on. And uh, so you would, with all your might, take this rope, and, and if you just, just, why don't you just jump over there in the, the aisle there, you would, you would pull, you, well, that's, okay, this is just a demonstration, but uh, <laughs> you pull, pull as hard as you can, and usually there was a line, and you would try to pull the person, you're very strong, by the way, uh, <laughs> you try to pull the person on your side, okay? Tough stuff. It's really, it's a you know, tough game there. And uh, if you want to grab a seat there, Brennan, for a sec. And actually, this is not a game that's a new game by any means. In fact, I was doing a little Googling around, as you can do. And uh, the Egyptians actually played this game of sorts about 4,000 years ago. They played this game called Tug of War. I don't know if they called it Tug of War. It was even actually an Olympic sports uh, back in 1900, it started. For about 20 years, uh, we had an Olympic sport. And of course, the United States won uh, one year and, uh, because we were just awesome that way. And it doesn't matter what it is. But after about 1920, uh, they decided to do away with tug of war at the Olympics and maybe replace it with something like, you know, a serious sport like synchronized swimming. And, uh, but this is not a game that's been invented recently. There's a lot of different groups that have played this. Uh, I love the beards in this picture and the guy's pocket watch. That's a smooth pocket watch, the guy in the middle. And uh, some other groups that have played. Uh, ladies, you were not left out of this awesome sport for, for years. I love the, the dresses and the second lady right here. I just noticed the look on her face. That's, that's the kind of intensity tug of war has. Uh, and then around the, the world, people have played this. Uh, you can look at other countries this is a, a game that, that people play it still today. I found this picture, apparently, uh, the next one, uh, I, I, they, apparently in Australia, this is a serious deal. Uh, they have a tug-of-war competition in different places. And so if you're first place, I thought this was interesting, you get $1,001 uh, and a bunch of bananas, just bananas. It's just like, you got 1000 bucks and bananas and a trophy. So there it is, a trophy. If you get second place, $500, $501, no bananas, no trophy, okay? But uh, it's definitely, a, 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 can be a fun game. There's a picture that I found of some kids playing, or actually elephants even play this game. They don't even need the rope, there you go. Then this last one is some kids playing, and this kids, that just sums it up right there. It's just, it's intense. Thank you, Getty Images, for letting us use that. Uh, but... Just kind of the intense look on his face. Now, Oxford English Dictionary says that tug of war, it originally meant the decisive contest, the real struggle or tussle, a severe contest for supremacy. And that, that's there. So here's the question for the day. Did you ever feel like you're playing tug of war with God? Do you ever feel like you're kind of pulling back and forth with God? Now, my youngest, Quinn, she's two, and she has a, a hair full of uh, just golden curls everywhere, and we hope that it stays that way forever. And if you see her today running through the halls, you think, man, that's the sweetest little girl in all the world. Don't be fooled, folks. <laughs> she has this thing inside of her that's just like, I think she gets it from her mama. Uh, <laughs> it's just intense competition of sorts and just this iron wheel that she has. And at times, we will just look at her and ask her to do something, like we'll ask her to eat something you know, healthy for her, and she will look at you and go, no. <laughs> and then her lip just comes out. 
I mean, it just sticks out like that. Have you ever seen kids that do that? My, my kid's not the only one, right? All right? No. And then consequences will come out, and suddenly she changes her mind in some way, but, but no. Kids, kids can be like that. Uh, I saw this picture this week uh, from Disney World uh, of a, a, a ride. Have you ever had the uh, pictures down the uh, Splash Mountain and things? Uh, I don't know if you noticed the person that... There's people that stick out in these pictures, uh, but the woman in the one, two, third cart there, we got a close-up on her. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that look, guys, or we're good at that look as well, but maybe you've seen that look before. Apparently, the story behind this picture is that the husband and the wife, they had they planned this trip for their family into Disney World, and she really, 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 really wanted to go to Splash Mountain. They had all these activities during the day, and the, the husband just kind of bailed uh, on the last minute, and she wanted to ride this with him. And so she rides the ride. She times it perfectly. She comes out and is like, here. <laughs> you didn't ride the ride with me. I rode by myself anyway. And I don't know, this kind of, I feel like at times, and early on in, in, in my marriage, Maybe you know what this is about. There's just this constant, I felt like Mel and I were even playing a little bit of tug of war back and forth, and I want it my way, and I want it now. And this back and forth, and, and, and maybe you even know of or experiences marriages that are kind of always in that kind of tug of war. I, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, but I am sort of, back home in South Carolina, I was a little bit of a star. Uh, I was in a commercial once, yes. I know, you're shocked. I grew up in South Carolina in my teen years, and uh, I was asked to be in a commercial. Uh, a lady from our church, uh, she was in the Department of, of Transportation, and they were filming a click it or ticket commercial. I don't know if you've seen those before. You click it or you get a, a ticket. So I, uh, you know, I, I decided to say, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. You know, I'll, I'll start on this commercial. You'll have to actually have the commercial, by the way. 2002, this isn't even on YouTube. This is, I had to get it off a of VHS tape. Uh, see if you can see me in this commercial. Or find, find Waldo. Did you find me? No hair on the face. I was like half a second I was there. We'll pause it after church if you really want to see it, okay? I thought, man, I really did think this was going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be in commercials, and they're going to see this one commercial, and they'll probably want to make more of these, you know? And I got a big 50 bucks for that day, uh, the entire day of filming. I was going to be the guy in the, uh, the passenger seat that was like, but apparently I didn't do a good enough job of doing this, and so I became the driver that uh, got the, f- the first ticket there. But there's something about even, remember when, when seatbelts became mandatory? And you're like, I don't want to do that. They're making us wear seatbelts now, and they have that little thing in your car that goes beep, beep, and it's annoying, isn't it? I don't want to do, I know that it's good for me and the right thing, but I, there was just something inside of you that says, no, I don't want to do that. A couple of years ago, I think it was, I want to say New York, state of New York, that said you, you can't have 
drink sizes that were so big. Do you remember when that came out? Like uh, Cokes that are that big because it's not good for you. And what happened? There was like, people were ready to stone the whole state because it's like, how dare you tell me what to do and what's good for me? And everyone was upset about that. Why? Because I want my way. And I want to do it my way. There's a, a group I read about this week. Uh, vegetarians are, are, I don't know if there are any vegetarians here, but you know, they don't eat meat. But there was a group of vegetarians a, a few years ago that said, you know what? I don't want to eat meat most of the time. But you know what? I really like bacon. <laughs> so every now and then, I'm going to eat meat because it's just that good, okay? And the regular vegetarians did not really care for that. Apparently, there was a little bit of a dispute. And so they said, you can do that, but you have to come up with your own name, okay? So they are forever were known from there as, let me get this right, uh, flexitarians, flexitarians, okay? Flexitarians are, are ones that, you know what, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm a vegetarian, except for this and this, except for this and this. A couple years ago, um, when we were in Florida, I was, was there, uh, there was a, a couple that, that went to our church and uh, had a conversation uh, with uh, the wife and the couple one day with, with the pastor and basically found out that uh, there had been an affair happening. And in that conversation, she said, you know, I am a, you know, I've just, I'm on fire for the Lord and I just kind of feel like, I kind of feel like this is what God wants me to do. I kind of feel like that this is okay. You know, because God, God, God told me that. Um, I, I'm a Christian, but there's just certain things that, that I, I kind of want it my, my way. And can we be honest? There are some things that God tells us to do that are just hard to do. They're just difficult if we want to be obedient to God in every area of our lives, they're just hard because they don't really jive with sometimes what we want to do. And maybe something naturally inside of us that says, it's better to go this way. And sometimes obeying God, it means it might cost you something. It might cost you a friendship. It might cost you a job. Run to people that say, you know what, it's hard to be honest in my job. Because if I don't, if I'm not like everyone else and I don't fudge the numbers or I don't do this or that, then I might not have a job anymore. And there's times where, where to do what God wants us to do is not easy. My son Noah played in an upward basketball league this last year and his team, is he in the room? Noah, are you here? They were not good. Uh, they lost every game uh, that they played. And I don't know if you've ever, your kids have ever had experiences like that, and you're like the parents on the sidelines trying to, you know, pump up your kids, and you know that there is no chance uh, that, that victory is possible that day. And he played on a team, and, and five of the kids, bless their hearts, uh, you know, they were almost afraid of the ball. And when the ball came to them, it was like, I don't want this. Let me give it to the other team. Uh, so some of you were there because your other, some of your kids played in the league uh, with our kid, uh, but it was tough. Melanie handled it probably better than I did. Uh, 
We were just wanting the best for him, and we wanted just to win one game, one game. And so finally they play this team. I thought, this is going to be the game. I just kind of scoped out the team, that this is going to be the game. And then this one kid showed up for the other team. And this kid was huge, okay? Like, this is a third and fourth grade league, and this kid is like my height, all right? And he is massive, okay? It's like Yao Ming amongst the Lilliputians. And... uh, All they did was, you know, they were battled back and forth, and all they did was they threw it to the tall kid, and he would just, like, tower over everyone and and make a basket. And still, it was close. I was just thinking the whole game, if this kid wasn't on their team, we could win this game. We could win. And and there's just back and forth inside of me, and I kind of internalized everything during games. And I'm just kind of just growing inside of me was happening, okay? And we ended up losing by just a, a few buckets, and those moments are, are hard because you try to you cheer up your kid and uh, you try to, you know, pick him up and say, great game and all these things that happen. But something happened to me. And the moments as we're getting ready to leave, I'm taking Noah out and suddenly I see the kid and I knew God was telling me to go up and to talk to the kid and say, awesome job. You are amazing at basketball. you've got a a great future, you keep it up and you keep working hard. And God was telling me that inside of me. And I did not want to do that. There was nothing inside of, nothing in my humanness that wanted to do that. And I kind of was back and forth with God for a few seconds and finally I said, okay. And I went and I, I said exactly what I just told you to this kid and I did it with as much enthusiasm as I could muster up and there was Noah and I thought, man, this is, this is probably a good thing for him to see as well. He walks outside, and he goes, and he, and he has his mother outside. And his mother is, is a very large woman who is probably disabled because of, of her size. And she is on a walker. And her son goes and helps her to the car. And they're by themselves. And it's an old beat-up car in the parking lot. And he helps her get in the, in the driver's seat. He takes the, the walker, he puts it in the trunk, and he goes and sits in the car, and there's nobody else there. Sometimes we don't know everything, do we? And uh, sometimes God tells us to do things. How do we know what God's will is? Because we spend time with him. And he speaks to us. And there are sometimes there are moments that are large moments, and sometimes there are subtle moments where Jesus says, I want you to do this. This is what's best. This is what's right. I know it's not clear always. Trust me. Jesus goes three times. God, are you sure this is is the right way? Are you sure? And, you know, I, I think that God, when we pull against God, because we do that, we pull against God sometimes. And sometimes it's things we know what God, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. And still we're like, I want to do it my way. And sometimes our pride gets in the way, and sometimes we even shake our, our fist or our finger at God and say, this is the way we should do it. Or how about we just have this and this? I saw this video. It's, it's a, I don't know if you like these kind of videos, but it's a tug-of-war match that, that happened. Uh, it was kind of a, I guess, a fail video, if you will. You know what's going to happen, don't you?
Now, I don't think that the rope snaps when we're, we're, we're playing that. I don't think anyone's hurting this. Brenda, if you don't mind, you know, when we pull, we pull against God, you know, eventually, I think God just lets us go. Let's just go and, and go our own way and say, if you, if you want to be in charge, if you want, if you want control, then you can have it. You can have it. And what I think Jesus did in, that, in the moments in the garden was, I don't think he pulled, I don't think he pulled away from God, but I think maybe the rope of temptation was in his hand. And what he did was, he let go. He let go and he said three times, not my, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And if you saw the passion of the Christ, what happened when, when that serpent came out as he's praying this intense prayer in this moment? As Jesus is, is getting strength from prayer, and what was he praying? Uh, and what was he saying? I wonder if scripture came to mind. Scripture like Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own, on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Or maybe he was singing. Remember what he was singing when he left the upper room? Psalms 118 again, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? As he's getting ready to go to the cross. Yes, the Lord is for me, he will help me. I will look and triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. My enemies did their best to kill me and they physically did kill Jesus, but the Lord rescued me. Overall, And what did he do? What did the Lord do for, for Jesus? He is my strength and my song, and he gave Jesus the victory. On Sunday, the victory came. It doesn't feel like it always on Friday, but on Sunday, the victory came, didn't it? Because he was risen to life again. He was risen to life again. So as he's praying this in this temptation moment, he submits and he, he, he gives his will over to God. And in the, in the Passion, what happens is there's this temptation scene. Satan comes up in the, the, in the form of a snake and he steps on his head, which is kind of cool when I think about that now. It's almost like, take that, Satan, in this moment of temptation that's there. So what happens? Jesus comes out of the garden. I think he, he's more resolved now. His eyes are on the cross. He's ready to go. He's strengthened by prayer. He's strengthened by scripture. He knows it's going to be difficult, but God is going to be with him and help him. And what does he, where does he find his disciples? <sighs> what did he tell them? Keep watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Temptation. And what happens from there? And just after that, that third prayer, he goes out to the garden, and there's Judas. And Judas, get this knows exactly where to look for Jesus. Why did he know exactly where to look for him? Because Jesus came to regular places in times of need and he prayed. Do you have regular spots that you pray in? Maybe some familiar places. I know we don't have mountains in the city, but maybe you know Jesus would retreat to the mountains. He would go to a place like the garden and he would spend time in his hour of need and, and pray. Judas knew exactly where he was. He knew where Jesus would be. He was in the garden. He shows up with this mob of people, 
And this mob of people are there to arrest him and, and the events of the Passion are about to take place. And uh, check out Mark. We're going to flip over to Mark 14. We're, we're coming to a close here. Mark 14, I, I don't think we can leave the garden without, without hearing this narrative. 14, 50, and 52. He says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. All his disciples, they took off. Just a few sentences earlier, they were saying things like this. We will die for you, Jesus. Peter was like, I would rather die than you to die. I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. And what does Peter do? He denies him three times. They take off in the garden. And then catch this. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, this is one of the coolest uh, verses in the Bible. And, and a little strange. A young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth or a linen garment. So underline young man, if you'd like to do that in your Bible, and linen garment was following Jesus. We don't know who this young man was. Some say it was Mark. Some say it was maybe one of the other disciples. We don't know who it is. But when they seized him, he fled naked, okay? When I hear that, I immediately think of, I don't know if you remember Ray Stevens. He sang this song about the streak. You remember Ray Stevens? And that's why they call him the streak. Some older folks in the room are helping me out here. Boogity, boogity. Uh, that's why they call him the streak. Don't look, Ethel. You might get mooned. All right, there it is. So there's this weird scene here in the garden. This naked guy is running, the first, maybe first streaker that's there. As the, this crew of people are there, they grab this linen cloth. The man is so afraid and so frightened that he runs away naked, leaving his garments behind. So it's like in the hands of the people, and he's taken off, and he, he has run. Now, a guy that I like to listen to, Scott Daniels, is a Nazarene scholar and a pastor, and he says, here's Here's his theory on what's happening here. Some say it's Mark that this is this guy. Some say it's disciples. What, what Scott says is this. The naked man, here it is, is us. We are, tell your neighbor, you are the naked man. All right, you are the naked man. Now follow this. Now, I don't know, somebody said, I'm not gonna say that, and that's okay. What he's saying is this. Remember the garden? Go back to, the, not the garden of Gethsemane, but the garden of Eden. What happened? They're tempted. They fall into sin. They run away, what? Naked. And they hide in their shame. And they hide in the fact that, that what they've done. And they're separated from God. And here is this man running away, okay? Now, you've got to see this. This is the best part. If you flip over to, to Mark chapter to 16, Mark chapter 16, and we're going to talk about this on Sunday in a couple of weeks, but I want to just give it to you early. Mark chapter 16, it says this. This is the ladies. They're going to the tomb. They looked up, and they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And you got to get this. As they entered the tomb, they saw what? A young man. The naked man is back. And does he have a, a, a linen cloth? No. The cloth has been replaced with a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Another cool part, Mark is the only gospel that doesn't tell us where Jesus' clothes were in the tomb. So here, what, what he's saying is this, that the naked guy now is wearing the clothes of Jesus, and it's not just linen clothes anymore. It is a white 
robe. Remember, white robe. Fast forward all the way to the end. Revelation, what does it say in 7, 9, and 10? After this, I looked up, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So what is he telling us today? Maybe you have run away from God. Maybe you have pulled and you have pulled and God has let go. And in our shame and in our guilt, we have run away. All of us have gone our own way at whatever time in our lives. And we've said, I'm going to be God in my life. I'm going to be Lord. I'm going to call the shots. And what does Jesus constantly do? He is constantly pulling us. And he's constantly calling us. And he's constantly saying, my grace is sufficient for you. And he keeps pulling us. And he's asking you today, maybe you just need to let go. And you need to say, your will be done in my life. Maybe God's saying, let go and follow his direction. Follow his will. What is it that you're pulling away from God today? Maybe it's time to let go. Worship band's gonna come up. And this morning, uh, we're going to, uh, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. Remember back in the upper room, Jesus took a cup and he took some bread The beautiful thing about our Lord is that he is a God of grace. He is the one that even though we were the ones that ran away from God and the ones that we are, the ones that that sin and cause the separation between him and us, because of his great love for us, because of what he did on the cross, his grace calls us back. He covers our sins. He loved us that much. And so today, we've asked some friends, they're going to help us serve. And uh, what we do in our church is when we take communion, you don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. And we come and we take by intention, you take a piece of bread and you, you'll, you're going to dip it in the, in the cup and you're going to take and be thankful. Someone's going to serve you, you're going to take the elements and you're going to serve the person behind you today. But this is what I want you to do. Before you come up to the table, maybe you need to spend some time with just the Lord. Maybe you need to kind of evaluate your heart. Is there anything that I'm just pulling away from God right now? And I'm pulling against the rope, and maybe God's telling you to let go. Maybe today, you need to just say, God, my future, my present, my past, grace is good enough for me. So before you come to the table, maybe evaluate your heart. And as you take today, don't take as someone that has something on their heart and their mind. Take as someone who is free and is thankful for God's grace in us. So when you're ready, we have some people that are coming and they're going to serve. You can come and take it.